welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Called to Restlessness. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 11, 2019. I was two months old when my parents left their native India to begin a new life in the United States. Like many immigrants, they came to America in the hope of securing a better future for themselves and their children. But also, like many immigrants, they struggled for decades after their arrival to accept themselves as hyphenated people, people who live in the liminal and often lonely spaces between homelands, identities, and cultures. I had no words for such complexities when I was little, but I sensed my parents' restlessness all the same. Their passionate desire to belong combined with the fierce need to stand apart. Their yearning for a safe place to call home. The torn, divided gaze that marked them as foreigners, glancing backwards in nostalgia while straining forward in hope. Their will to shape a life worthy of the sacrifices, losses, hurts, and challenges that came with immigration their tireless conviction that more and better was not only a possibility, but a promise. In our lectionary readings this week, the biblical writers capture similar experiences of in-betweenness, experiences of loss and hope, exile and belonging. Directed by God, Abraham gazes at the night sky, trying in vain to imagine descendants as numerous as the stars, while his wife Sarah remains heartbreakingly barren. The psalmist writes of those who hope in God's steadfast love, even when that hope entails little more than patient endurance through famine, suffering, and death. The writer of Hebrews acknowledges that the heroes of the faith confessed that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth, seeking a homeland even as they toiled in exile, desiring a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And through the Gospel writer, Jesus describes faithful servants who wait for their beloved master through the long watches of the night, hopeful that he will return home and reward their diligence, albeit at an unexpected hour. Each of these readings describes the lives of the faithful. Each explores what faith looks and feels like in the world we actually live in. Abraham's belief is credited to him as righteousness. The eye of the Lord is on those who trust him as their help and shield. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The servants who put their faith in their master's return are blessed and rewarded. Okay, but what is faith? Growing up, I was taught that faith was a matter of creeds and doctrines, a matter of intellectual assent. To accept Jesus into my heart, to be born again, was to affirm a set of claims about who Jesus is and what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. To enter into Orthodox faith faith was to agree that certain theological statements about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the human condition, the Bible, and the Church were true. When the Christians I knew spoke of growing in the faith, what they meant was that they were honing their doctrinal commitments making sure they had their theological ducks all in a row. For me, this way of believing, 
this way of defining faith as an intellectual assent to precisely codified doctrines, has slowly but surely fallen apart. Not because I can't assent, but because my assenting in and of itself has not fostered anything close to the meaningful relationship I desire to have with God. If anything, the intellectual assent has been a smokescreen, a distraction, a poor substitute for the real thing. So again, what is the real thing? What is faith? As I spend time with the lectionary readings this week, I've been struck by the fact that they affirm a definition of faith that my immigrant parents would understand. The texts describe the faithful as people who set out for new places, anticipate new arrivals, wait for big changes, and search for new homelands. In these texts, the faithful are nomads. They wander. They contend with the holy restlessness. They straddle the hyphen. They work for the transformation of this world, even as they yearn with all their hearts for another. Faith, as it is described in scripture, is not, in other words, a destination. It's not a conclusion or a form of closure. Faith is a longing. Faith is a hunger. Faith is a desire. According to Abraham's story, faith is the restless energy that pushes us out the door and onto the road in pursuit of the inheritance God has promised. Faith is the audacity to undertake a perilous journey simply because God asks us to, not because we know ahead of time where we're going. Faith is the itch and the ache that turns our faces towards the distant stars, even on the cloudiest of nights. Faith is the willingness to stretch out our imaginations and see new birth, new life, new joy, even when we feel withered and dead inside. Faith is the urgency of the homeless for a true and lasting home, a home whose architect and builder is God. Likewise, according to Jesus' parable of the diligent servants, faith is a posture of active, engaged alertness. It is the rightly aligned heart, the dressed for action body, the lit lamp on a dark night. It is the humble willingness to steward a house we don't possess until its rightful owner comes home. It is the patient ability to wait on a presence that has not yet arrived, a promise that has not yet been fulfilled. It is an overwhelming desire to welcome, serve, and nourish Jesus whenever and however he makes an appearance. It is a daily business of living on our tiptoes, our eyes on the door, our hands ready at the knob for the Master's joy-filled arrival. By these definitions, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is complacency, apathy, resignation, and cynicism. The opposite of faith is falling asleep. It's pie in the sky a disengaged acceptance of the status quo, a refusal to embrace holy restlessness as an incentive to work for a more just and loving world here and now. The opposite of faith is accepting anything less than the kingdom God wishes to give us. It's hanging back and holding still when the call of God on our lives is to move. As a child of immigrants, living at a cultural moment when immigrants are facing unspeakable hatred, contempt, and abuse here in the United States, I am particularly grateful that God loves the traveler, the wanderer, the foreigner, the exile. I love that those who embrace in-betweenness can serve as vital living metaphors for the life of faith, contemporary parables for the church's growth and edification. I love that those who don't belong are the closest to the heart and mission of God. 
And I love that the holy restlessness we feel as people of faith comes from God's restless love and desire for us. The home we strain towards is the same home God is preparing for us right now because it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. All we have to do is journey towards it. All we have to do is welcome it by faith. For books this week, Dan reviews The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming by David Wallace Wells. When my wife and I hiked across England last summer, the Wainwright Walk, we met a couple from Cape Town that described to us their catastrophic drought that led to draconian restrictions The city's 4.5 million citizens were required to limit themselves to 23 gallons of water per day. In the United States, average consumption is easily five times that amount. And the day that I finished The Uninhabitable Earth, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences published a paper based on 50 years of data that documented how Greenland's ice is melting six times faster than it was in the 1980s. The message of this book is both simple and terrifying. Our climate change disaster is worse, much worse, than you think. Already, right now. Not a few decades from now, when things will almost certainly be worse still. In the year 2050, to take just one of the many dozens of examples that Wallace Wells gives, the UN projects that there will be 20 million climate refugees, which is more than the population of the entire world during the peak of the Roman Empire. There is no uncertainty about the science, says Wallace Wells only the uncertainty of our human choices and actions. And herein lies the proverbial silver lining. Despite the pessimistic conclusions that one might draw from his apocalyptic narrative, Wallace Wells says that he is not fatalistic, and that we should never surrender or withdraw as if we were helpless. He rejects climate nihilism. We have choices, and there is nothing stopping us from steering clear of environmental annihilation except, perhaps, our incredible failure of imagination to grasp what is right in front of us. But our individual actions must be scaled by robust politics. However, however good it feels to juice your Prius from your solar roof, consumer choices are no substitute for political action. Voting is more important than eating organic. Wallace Wells' story of our emergent form of suffering is, he hopes, horrifying. It is also entirely elective. A crisis is political and therefore functionally elective. For more on this topic, see my reviews of the books Rebecca E. Hirsch, Climate Migrants, On the Move in a Warming World, Elizabeth Colbert, The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, Bill McKibben, Earth, Making a Life in a Tough New Planet, Robert J. Lifton, The Climate Swerve, Reflections on Mind, Hope, and Survival, and Jared Diamond's Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, and then finally the movie Climate Refugees. For films this week, Dan reviews Charm City. Director and producer Marilyn Ness took her camera to the streets of Baltimore for three years, to document the brave citizens there who are fighting back against the trauma they all experience in the Charm City. Blighted neighborhoods with boarded-up houses, 30,000 vacant properties, violent drug trade, gangs, a murder rate that was approaching the highest ever in the history of the city, unemployment as high as 50% for black men, 
and the deep distrust of the police due to corruption and brutality. Ness focuses on six citizens who are making a difference, and without any narration lets them tell their own stories. Chief among these is Clayton Guten, who started the Rose Street Community Center in 1998. Alex Long works for Guten with his trash collection, gang mediation, and his own brand of de-escalation training. Then there are three police officers, two black and one white, Monique Brown, Eric Winston, and John Gregorio. Finally, there's Brandon Scott, the youngest person to be elected to the city council. During the three years of this film, there were 1,029 homicides in Baltimore. But that has not deterred the dedication of these inspirational difference makers. I watched this independent lens film from the PBS website. And finally, for poetry, I lived, yet do not live in me, by St. John of the Cross. I live, yet do not live in me, am waiting as my life goes by, and die, because I do not die. No longer do I live in me, and without God I cannot live. To him or me I cannot give myself, so what can living be? A thousand deaths my agony, waiting as my life goes by, dying, because I do not die. This life I live alone I view as robbery of life, and so it is a constant death, with no way out until I live with you. God, hear me, what I say is true, I do not want this life of mine, and die, because I do not die. Being so removed from you, I say, what kind of life can I have here but death so ugly and severe and worse than any form of pain? I pity me, and yet my fate is that I must keep up this lie and die because I do not die. The fish taken out of the sea is not without a consolation. His dying is of brief duration and ultimately brings relief. Yet what convulsive death can be as bad as my pathetic life? The more I live, the more I die. When I begin to feel relief on seeing you in the sacrament, I sink in deeper discontent, deprived of your sweet company. Now everything compels my grief. I want, yet can't, see you nearby, and die because I do not die. Although I find my pleasure, sir, in hope of someday seeing you, I see that I can lose you, too which makes my pain doubly severe. And so I live in darkest fear and hope, wait as life goes by, dying, because I do not die. Deliver me from death, O God, and give me life. Now you have wound a rope about me. Harshly bound, I ask you to release the cord. See how I die to see you, Lord, and I am shattered where I lie, dying, because I do not die. My death will trigger tears in me, and I shall mourn my life, a day annihilated by the way I fail and sin relentlessly. O oh, Father God, when will it be that I can say without a lie, I live because I do not die? Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 11th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.